You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. everybody. David Guzik here. So glad you could join me for today's live Q&A. Sorry for a little bit of a technical problem that happened a couple minutes ago. I got things started and then things froze up. I don't know if that was a problem on my end or on the end of YouTube, but we're back on and back ready to go here. Sorry if it uh, bumped anybody off who was expecting it, but we're just starting just a couple minutes late and we're here on our YouTube live. Glad you could join me. Today's lead question for our YouTube live question and answer is simply this. Does Israel belong in the New Testament? Again, let me repeat that. Does Israel belong in the New Testament? And this question comes from Jim, who asked about something in the news that he forwarded to me. Basically, it's about a new translation of the Bible in Danish. Uh, The translation is called the Danish Contemporary Bible 2020. And in that new translation in the Danish language, by the way, I've got several believing friends and colleagues in pastoral ministry and just serving the Lord in Denmark. Uh, They probably won't see this, but hi, Daniel. Hi, Tice. Tice is in England right now, but he's Danish. Hi, Tice. Uh, Hi, Nils. Hi, Renee. Um, I know some wonderful blessed brothers serving the Lord and giving him honor uh, in uh, Denmark. So anyway, This new translation of the Bible in Danish, the Danish Contemporary Bible, it frequently omits or replaces the word Israel in the Bible. Now, this is especially true, and these are from the reports I've read, this is especially true in the Greek scriptures, what we call the New Testament. In all but two places in the New Testament, this Danish Contemporary Bible 2020 where the Greek says Israel, they translate it either the Jewish people or the Jews. They don't want to use the word Israel there. And then apparently in 9% of the places in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, they replace the word Israel with the word or phrase either the Jewish people or the Jews. And this is obviously an attempt to distance the Bible from the word Israel, from the idea of Israel. And one reason for this, you you had every reason to ask, well, why why would somebody do this in a Bible translation? One reason for this was they said that they wanted to eliminate any confusion between modern Israel and the Jewish people of biblical times. Now, let me just say that this is wrong. This is a wrong thing to do with the translation. To take where the Greek says Israel, and to translate it either the Jewish people or the Jews. And and let me tell you why it's wrong, for several reasons. First of all, it's just bad translation. Now, we have to be very honest about this. Bible translation or translation of any kind is not easy. And sometimes a literal translation isn't better. Uh, When in the original language or the original culture, someone is using uh, phrases, uh, idioms, phrases, proverbial expressions, sometimes it's better to give the meaning rather than to translate the literal words. We're not trying to say that translation is easy. 
I'm also not trying to say that strictly literal is always a better translation. But this is what we have to consider in the particular case that we're talking about with this Danish contemporary version. Since the Bible does use, and I'm talking about in the original languages, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, the Bible does use both the words Israel and the Jews. Now, I'll just talk about the New Testament for a moment. When you take out your Greek New Testament, there are places in the Greek text where it mentions Israel. And it's the Greek word that's translated Israel. And, and then there's other places where it has the word the Jews or Jewish people. And then it translates that into whatever language, English, Danish, German, Swedish, whatever you can talk about. Now, here's the thing. If they had both words at their disposal, we should believe that where it says Israel, it's best to translate Israel. And where it says the Jews, it's best to translate the Jews. It's really not complicated. This thing, and I can't speak for the intentions of the people who translated the Danish Contemporary 2020 Bible. I, It's not my here place to judge their intentions, but I'm telling you, it's simply bad translation to act as if you're going to say, we wish they would have chosen another word instead of the word that they chose. If the text says Israel, they should translate Israel. Because if the biblical author wanted to say the Jews, he could have written the Jews. But no, they wanted to say Israel instead of saying the Jews. Okay, so first of all, it's bad translation. Number two, it's bad understanding of the New Testament references to Israel. I find it very significant that in Matthew chapter 2, verse 21, that it refers to, again, and this is the New Testament text, it refers to the land of Israel. Most notably, this is when uh, Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus were coming back from their time in Egypt, escaping the murderous slaughter of King Herod. It says that they came back into the land of Israel. Now, what absolutely blows my mind about that is that at that time, there was, strictly speaking, or if you want to say politically speaking, there was no land of Israel. <laughs> that was the Jewish province of Judea. There's no doubt about it. There was no independent land of Israel. Nevertheless, the biblical authors, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he refers to that as the land of Israel. If he wanted to speak strictly under um you know, proper geopolitical terminology at the time, he would have said they came back into the Romans province, uh, Roman province of Judea. But he didn't say that. Saying God considered that geography the land of Israel, even when the rest of the world considered to be the Roman province of Judea. And then later on in Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, Jesus referred to the Jewish people as Israel. Now, again, we remind ourselves, as a political entity, there was no Israel. There was only a covenant people descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There was no nation of Israel. There was no kingdom of Israel. They were under the overlordship of the Romans. There was no independent Israel at all. Yet Jesus referred to the Jewish people as Israel. Very important here. 
In Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, Jesus referred to the cities of Israel. Again, these were out of the mouth of Jesus himself, and that is a geographic designation. We see a similar thing in Luke chapter 7, verse 9. Luke, being a Gentile author of the gospel, noted that Jesus said that, again, referring to Israel as a place in geographic terms. So the New Testament deliberately refers to the people, the Jewish people, and that land as Israel in the New Testament times, uh, even if other people would choose not to identify it that way. That's how the New Testament sees it. So first, it's bad translation. Secondly, it's bad understanding of the New Testament. And third and finally, to eliminate or almost eliminate the word Israel from the New Testament. It ignores or fails to appreciate God's promises to Israel. You see, the Jewish people are a chosen people. Let me say that again. And I don't know if this offends anybody in our viewing audience, but I'll just say it very plainly. The Jewish people are a chosen people. Now, please listen. They're not chosen to salvation. Being a Jewish person does not guarantee that you go to heaven. Now, there are some people who have thought that way. Honestly speaking, there are some people, uh, both ancient and modern, who think that every single descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, every single Jewish person automatically goes to heaven. It's salvation by genetics. Just because you are of the Jewish people, you're going to go to heaven. Well, I don't think that's a biblical understanding at all. So the Jewish people are not chosen for automatic salvation in heaven but they are chosen for a particular role in God's unfolding plan of the ages. And for that reason, they are precious in the sight of God, and they should be respected by every Christian for sure, and I would say by humanity in general. And might I say as well, because they are a chosen people, chosen for a particular role in God's unfolding plan of the ages, that's why there is such a satanic... Um, uh, prompting a satanic energy to Jew hatred, what some people call anti-Semitism. So the Jewish people are a chosen people, not chosen to salvation, but chosen for a particular role in God's unfolding plan of the ages. Now, one of the designations that God gave to this chosen people, the covenant descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel and those descended from them, one of the designations God gave to that chosen people is Israel. Now, it's not just the people that are called Israel, but the land of Israel is also a chosen land. Do you realize that Zechariah chapter 2, verse 12 says that God calls the land of Israel his holy land? Now, let's understand, it isn't chosen as a place to be closer to God. You're not going to be closer to God in Israel than you are anywhere else. And I really do want to emphasize that. You don't have to go to Israel to get close to God. You can get close to God right now. Jesus Christ is your mediator, not the Israeli tourist board. Now, I do want to say this. Going to Israel is amazing. And if you have the opportunity, you should go to Israel. I am leading a tour to Israel this September. And I want you to know 
because as I record this, we're still in the midst of sort of the, the, the ending phases of all the coronavirus concern and all that. We just spoke with our travel agent. This September Israel trip is on. I think it'll be amazing. If you would like to come to Israel with me and my wife, Ingalil, and just some other great people, that Israel trip is on. Go to the Enduring Word website and you can find information about the Israel trip. EnduringWord.com slash Israel, and they'll tell you all about it. But anyway, the land of Israel is a chosen land because God enacted his plan of the ages in time and space, and there had to be some place where he did it. And he chose the land of Israel to do it. Look, there had to be some place where Jesus would do his ministry. It was in Israel. There had to be some place where Jesus would die for the sins of the world. It was in Israel. There had to be some place where God established a kingdom from which the Messiah would come. It was in Israel, on and on and on and on. So both the people of Israel and the land of Israel are chosen for a special place in God's plan. And let me say this is very important. That plan is still in effect. There are some people think that God ended that plan when the Jews uh, did not embrace Jesus Christ as Messiah at his first coming. No, that plan is still in effect. God is still working out his plan of the ages. And that's why Israel, both as a people and as a land, has a special place in God's plan. God has not cast off either the people or the land, and neither should any good Bible translation. So um, this contemporary Bible, the Danish Bible, contemporary 2020, um, I, I can't speak for the rest of the quality of the translation. Look, I just don't know. But I would say that the deliberate decision to replace the word Israel with the word Jews or Jewish people or just to eliminate the word all, altogether, that wasn't a good decision. It's not good because it's bad translation, it's bad understanding in the New Testament, and it's, it's bad understanding of Israel's place in God's plan of the ages. All right, let me take another question here, a question that came from John. His question is this. Why was the Lord sorry for making Saul king? Did God make a mistake? Didn't God know what would have happened? Now, this is based on 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 35, because this is what 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 35 says. It says this, the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. I think in the old King James Version, it says that the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. And so John's question is a very good question. Why was the Lord sorry for making Saul king? Did God make a mistake? And didn't he know what would have happened? And let me say, um, um, no, God did not make a mistake. And yes, he did know what would have happened. Let's just use this idea, this idea that the Lord was sorry or the Lord regretted. That similar phrase is used in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, about uh, humanity at the time of Noah. It's used at Exodus chapter 32, verse 14, where Israel was sinning against God, dancing around the golden calf. And God says, listen, I'm sorry I ever made you guys. I'm sorry I ever called you. Now, we can understand these passages, 1 Samuel 15, 35, Genesis 6, 6, Exodus 32, 14. We can understand these passages by understanding 
but the idea of what we call anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphic means man-centered language. You see, what the Bible does is it describes sometimes the actions of God as they appear to man. This is just how we would understand it. So, you see, God didn't feel um uh, didn't feel like he made a mistake when he made Saul Samuel excuse me Saul king but at the same time he was sorry that Saul was such a disaster um God didn't make a mistake when he brought the children of Israel out of of um Egypt but it still pained God greatly when he saw them sinning at the golden calf now some people are frustrated and I understand because sometimes the Bible describes God's actions in human terms. And really, that's what we're doing. God wasn't sorry in the sense that he made a mistake. But the best we can understand the heart of God, the best analogy we can make to that is by putting it to the human emotion of sorrow or regret. Now, again, that's frustrating to some people. The, the fact that sometimes the Bible describes God's actions in human terms. But if you think about it, God's actions really cannot be described in any other way. How else could we describe the actions of God in human terms if we're not going to describe them any other way? I found a great quote from Charles Spurgeon to this regard. You know, guys know how much I love Spurgeon. Spurgeon wrote this. He said, I suppose that I do not need to say that this verse speaks after the manner of men. I do not know after what other manner we can speak. To speak of God after the manner of God is reserved for God himself. And mortal men could not comprehend such speech. In this sense, the Lord often speaks not according to the literal fact, but according to the appearance of things to us in order that we may understand so far as the human can comprehend the divine. Well, Spurgeon said it exactly correctly there. Um, God is speaking there in a way that we can understand to the best of our ability. God's heart was filled with sorrow, with pain over the sin of Saul and over what had happened to the kingdom under him. But God had a plan. He had another king waiting in the wings. He just needed some more training. And that was King David as he would come forth and succeed Saul. So, John, great question. I, I hope that answers it for you. All right, let me look over to the side chat bar now and take a look at some of the questions or comments that have come in. Uh, Brad says, thank you. You're very welcome, Brad. Um, broken people, Lord bless you. Pastor David, praying for enduring word. Hey, uh, broken people, I want to say thank you for your prayers. Um, I, I'd like people especially to be praying. I, I've asked you to pray for this before, but I'll tell you why I especially want you to pray for it now. Especially be praying for traffic to come to our dedicated Arabic website. We've completed the translation of my Bible commentary of the entire New Testament. The whole thing is finished. And we've made a dedicated Arabic website for that. Well, all through the month of May, we're launching a special Facebook campaign in some Arabic-speaking countries to let people know about the commentary. And so pray for God's blessing upon that. Pray 
that we just are able to effectively get the word out about this free Bible resource, ad-free Bible resource. We're not trying to get traffic to the site so we get more ad revenue. That has nothing to do with it. We don't run any ads on the site. It's just simply so that we can make the most effective use of this Bible resource. So thank you for your prayers. Now to your question, broken people. My question is, what can a married person do if one feels called to the mission field and the other does not? Broken people, that's a great question. Something that I have a little bit of experience with, not that there was a difference of opinion between my wife and I, but I know what it's like to go to the mission field. My wife and myself and our three children, we went to uh, the country of Germany to start a small international Bible college. And we stayed there for seven years ministering in another place. And uh, we were very, very blessed to do that. that. That was seven wonderful years of our life. And we're very grateful for that. It was important, and I think wisdom from God, that we did this in sync together. Listen, one of the basic principles of marriage is that God has made a husband and wife one. And therefore, um, they shouldn't do radical changes of life like that unless they are both in agreement. So if a person believes, listen, I believe that we're called to the mission field and I think we should go but my wife doesn't believe that we're called to the mission field. She doesn't want to go. I shouldn't force her to go. But what I should do is I should just pray mightily, God, if it's truly your will for us to go, why don't you change my wife's heart and mind? And God can do that. You know, the, the Bible says that the heart of a king is in the hand of God and he guides it wherever he wants. If the heart of a king is in the hand of God, then the heart of just regular everyday people is in the hand of God. God can change hearts when and how he wants to. So uh, I would say, wait, pray and wait and wait for God to speak to the heart of your spouse. Now, I know some people hear that and they go, well, then we're never going because the, the, um, heart of my spouse, my husband, my wife, it's never going to change. L listen, I, I want you to get that thing. I know of many stories where people have done a complete 180. They were determined we should not go to the mission field. Then God spoke to their heart and they said, no, now we're going. So God can change hearts. If, if there's a disagreement area like this between a husband and a wife, uh, the person should just pray and wait. That, that's been my experience. Andrea. Uh, asks, hi, Andrea, when did the ritual of baptism start? Was John the first one to baptize people? And where does the concept of baptism originate from? Oh, Andrea, that is a great question and actually a question that's very dear to my heart because uh, I think that we should talk more about baptism and not less. And in particular, um, I, I disagree with the practice of infant baptism, baby baptism, pedo baptism, if you want to use a more theological term. Now, uh, I, I could go into all the reasons why I disagree with that and why I think it's important. But part of the reason, there's many reasons why I believe in the concept of believer's baptism and not infant baptism or baby baptism. There are many reasons, I believe, but one of them is exactly connected to the question that Andrea is asking. You see, one thing we have to understand about baptism is that it comes out of 
the ceremonial washings that the Jews practiced in the first century. The Jewish world of the first century, and I'm not saying that it was only the Jewish world of the first century, because th this exists before that and even to today. Ceremonial washings in water were a big deal. They were a regular practice. They were part of their ritual toolkit, so to speak. And so when John the Baptist came baptizing in the wilderness of Judea, and when he was dunking people, when he was immersing people in water, because that's what he did, th this was, it was remarkable because of his message. It was remarkable because the radicalness of his call, but the basic idea of being immersed and washed was not a radical idea in the Jewish world of that time. They did it all the time. If you go to Israel, I'm mentioning Israel again. You come with me to Israel in September, and we're going to go to the temple area. The, the, and, and when we go to the temple, we're going to go to the south side of the temple, and we're going to see the excavations in the ruins. And one of the things you're going to see is these areas that they call the mikvah. And the mikvah are these places that were specially constructed for the ceremonial washings that Jewish people would undergo before they went to the temple for worship. You can see the, the, the interesting archaeological remains of these. These things were common practice in Judaism, and this is what it spoke, it spoke of, cleansing. So I would say this, the ritual of baptism, as we know it today, started with John the Baptist, but it was vitally connected with what went before. Vitally connected with that. And, and then it says, was John the first one to baptize people? Well, yes. In that, what we would call that baptism, but it grew out of Jewish ceremonial washings. And so this idea of a ritual cleansing. Now, here's, here's what we understand. The Christian idea of baptism grows out of John's baptism, which grew out of Jewish ceremonial washings. And by the way, the fact that Christian baptism grows out of John's baptism is is easily provable in the scriptures. If you're interested in that, ask me specifically about that. So you have Jewish ceremonial washings, which led to John's baptism, which led to Christian baptism. So Christian baptism very much carries with it the obvious connotation of being washed and cleansed from your sins. It's a bath. You're being washed. You're not baptized in sand. You're not baptized with leaves from a tree. You're baptized with water. You're washed. So cleansing, number one. And then very clearly in Romans chapter six, baptism also carries the connotation of our death with Jesus Christ by identifying with his work on the cross and our resurrection with Jesus Christ by identifying with his risen victory as evidence from the empty tomb. We are dead with Christ and we are um, risen from the dead with Christ. Under the water, buried, risen up out of the water, new life in Jesus Christ. So cleansing, new life in Jesus Christ. And there's a third aspect in the New Testament. Baptism also speaks of belonging to the community of God's people, to the church. Now, I think one of the problems with the pedo baptism mentality is they really only emphasize the third aspect, at least according to my study, according to my reading, that they're not saying, now it's a little hard to say because when we're talking about infant baptism, 
there's no one theology of infant baptism. Different Christian groups explain it different ways, but a prominent way, especially the way that many Reformed people explain uh, um, infant baptism is this, is that when a baby's baptized, they're not saying that the baby's eternally saved, washed of their sin and new life in Christ. They're saying that the baby belongs to the covenant community and baptism is the sign given to evidence that somebody's part of the covenant community. But isn't that totally disregarding the other two aspects of baptism, which I think those other two aspects of baptism are even more prominent than the idea of the covenant community? Well, Andrea, thank you for your question. I think you can tell why um, this was kind of interesting to me, and I get excited talking about it. Uh, John or Jonathan says, uh, King Saul, I already dealt with that question. Hope you got that, John. Friday girl says, yes, amen. I'm grateful to be grafted in. Amen to that. Um, Brad says he also gave Israel the written word. They have preserved it. Absolutely. That was part of God's um, call for Israel, part of what he chose them for, to kind of have custody over his written revelation. Very important aspect of that. Agnes asks this. I heard another Calvinist pastor say, that we can take the mark of the beast and repent because it is not the unpardonable sin. Is this true? Because I was taught that the mark changes your physical image. Okay, Agnes, uh, let me say this. I think it's important that we realize that when we're talking about the mark of the beast, that whatever specifically the mark of the beast is going to be, it's not going to be only an economic thing. Matter of fact, this question comes up a lot, so I took some notes concerning it. Um, There are several scriptures in the book of Revelation that speak about the mark of the beast, and these are the ones that people refer to. For example, Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 and 17 say this, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except the one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. So again, this is talking about receiving a mark and it's connected to economic activity. But notice this from Revelation chapter 14, verses 9, 10, 11. It says here in verse 9, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand. And then later on in verse 11 of Revelation chapter 14, it says, um, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And then it says in Revelation chapter 16, verse 2, it speaks of the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. Then finally, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, it talks about those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. What I'm just trying to get at is that of the four verses in the book of Revelation, passages that mention the mark of the beast, let's say there's five, uh, two of them in Revelation 14. Of the five, four of the five specifically mention worship being connected to the mark of the beast. So whatever the mark of the beast is, it's not going to be merely an economic thing. It's also going to be some kind of declaration of allegiance, submission, worship, to 
that person who's popularly called the Antichrist, I know that's not the best name for him, but popularly called the Antichrist and his governmental system. Uh, so not only economic, but also worship. Now, he, here's the thing is that the, the question poses, is that the unforgivable sin? If a person received the mark of the beast and then realized it was wrong and then denied it, renounced it, repented of it, could they ever find salvation? I, I would say this. I would say likely so, likely so, because of simple this idea is that that doesn't really seem to indicate that that is the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is the continual rejection of Jesus Christ, the continual settled rejection. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We would say that the only person who can't repent is the person who refuses repentance. Other than that, that God has said, you can repent. It's not too late. Now, I would say, theoretically, it's possible for someone to repent who's received the mark of the beast. But why would anybody ever take such a chance? Why would anybody take such a chance? No, when a mark, and look, is this going to happen in our days? Is this going to happen in the future? Is this going to, the Bible speaks of a time when some kind of economic mark will be given to people and that mark will be connected with some kind of allegiance, submission, uh, worship of a man and his governmental system. Don't take it. Don't take that. All right. I hope that's helpful there, Agnes. Uh, Anya. Hey, Anya. Nice to hear from you. Anya says, hi, David. We're asked by someone who's very sick to pray for her and to anoint her with oil, uh, as in James. How can we better understand the role of anointing oil? Well, Anya, that's a great question. And I'm glad, first of all, that you're going to do this. I think it's important that we fulfill the command that's given to us in the book of James that when somebody is sick, we should go and we should anoint them with oil. And there's a couple different senses of this. First of all, in James chapter five, when it talks about anointing someone with oil, there is some evidence that the anointing with oil, and this is the idea of like an oil massage, anointing with oil was considered a medicinal treatment in the first century. So it, it may be that one sense of what James is saying is get the person medical care, give them some medicinal treatment. And, and, and we certainly know that our prayers for somebody for healing do not contradict in any way their getting of medical help as well. Matter of fact, that James 5 passage is an indication that the two can work one together. So that's one aspect of it. The, the Greek idea there may have the, I can't be certain of that, but it may have the idea of getting medical treatment. But here's another one. Throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, we have the idea of anointing with oil as a demonstration of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Priests were anointed with oil to indicate the necessity of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit on their work. Kings were anointed with oil as a demonstration of the necessity of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in their work. Prophets were anointed with oil. So carrying the idea forth from the Old Testament, we see that the anointing with oil is a physical demonstration of something that happens spiritually. Lord, we ask that you apply to this person the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Because here's another thing. Throughout the Bible, oil is used as an emblem 
of the Holy Spirit and his work. And now there's a lot of reasons for this. Um, in many ways, there's similarities between the work of oil and the work of the Holy Spirit. When we talk about oil in a biblical sense, we're talking about olive oil. We're not talking about petroleum oil. We're not talking about sunflower oil. We're not talking about rapeseed oil. We're talking about olive oil. And in the ancient world, olive oil was used for almost everything. It was used as a medicinal thing, as I've said. It was used to light lamps. It brought light. It was used to bring heat. It was used to uh, lubricate things. It was used to make things more pleasant. It was used to make things smell better. So um, the oil of the olive that was used in the first century had so many useful and blessed things associated with that the anointing of oil came to be a picture of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we anoint somebody with oil and pray for them, we're not doing it in a superstitious way. We don't do it and you know think like it's some magical potion that helps. But what we do believe with all of our hearts is, Lord, we're doing this in faithfulness to your scriptures, as it says in James 5 and other passages. And we're doing this as just a, an emblem, a picture of the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, this dear brother or sister that we pray with, would you please overflow them with the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit and bring healing to them? That, that's that's the context I would use for in a prayer of healing. Thank you, Anya. Uh, great to hear from you. Um, thanks. Clip to word. Brad says, the definition of the kingdom of God is where God rules. Did the kingdom come to the earth at the transfiguration? Uh, they will see the kingdom of God. They did see it six days later. Okay, Brad, yes. I think that when Jesus said in the gospel of Mark, and it's also recorded, of course, the transfiguration in Matthew and in Luke, he said, there's many standing here who will see the kingdom of God. And the fact that the transfiguration happened a short time later, they saw the glory, they saw the power, they saw the presence of God's kingdom right there and then. In that sense, yes, the transfiguration was the fulfillment at that time of that promise. There's a lot more to the kingdom of God than was comprehended in the transfiguration, of course, or even in all that Jesus did in his first coming. But that was an important and a very powerful picture and presentation of the kingdom of God. Um, Levy asks, how do you know if a dream is from God? Well, Levy, I, I would just simply say, first of all, um, we, we need to judge everything by the grid of Scripture. So um, if a dream would tell me something that isn't true according to the Bible, it's not from God. If a dream would guide me to do something different than what the Bible tells me to do, it's not from God. So any kind of dream or vision, none of that can ever replace the Word of God. I, I love that picture that's given to us in the prophets where it says, what is the chaff to the wheat? This is like the wheat, the whole grain, the goodness, and um, dreams, vision, in comparison, that stuff's chaff. So first, we judge it by the word of God. Secondly, I would just pray for what the Bible calls is the discerning of spirits. Um, Lord, I had this dream. I ask that you give me discerning of spirits to know if this is something that you're speaking to me or not. Um, 
and then uh, that's simply how I do it. Um, if you really don't know, if you feel like you need more guidance, get together with a trusted brother or sister that you know and simply pray with that brother or sister and ask them, say, Lord, we want to know discerning of spirits. I, I will say this, though. I believe it would be extremely, extremely rare for God to give any significant direction to somebody through a dream. Um, maybe in the sense of confirmation, but if you have a dream that you're supposed to do something radical, um, it's entirely fair to ask God for more confirmation because uh, that is like the chaff to the wheat. We, we need focus on the word of God, of course. Um, Levy asks, how will people become sinless in heaven? Well, Levy, it's pretty simple. We're going to be perfected. We're going to be perfected in Jesus Christ. And that which we have right now, the freedom to sin, we will have the blessed liberty to not sin and to never sin again in heaven. Um, Dennis asks, and I'm just going to finish up the questions that we have right here on the board. So if you write anything in later, I'm afraid I won't get to it as a question, but uh, maybe I can address it later. Dennis says, thank you, Pastor Guzik. Uh, for the question answer time, my wife and I truly enjoy. Thank you, Jesus, for the wisdom he's given me. Well, thank you, Dennis. I'm very happy to hear it. Blessings to you and to your wife. Amarcus says, hi, Pastor David. No question, but thank you for all you do. Bless you, Amarcus. Very happy to hear it and uh, very happy that you enjoyed the Enduring Word website. Uh, again, for people who don't know, and again, I, you know, some people know, some people don't. I, I have a written commentary on the entire Bible. It's available absolutely free of charge at EnduringWord.com. You can also get it at Blue Letter Bible, a blb.org, which is a tremendous Bible resource. Uh, but my own website and the one I'm able to keep everything most current and most up-to-date, EnduringWord.com, ad-free, hassle-free, easy to use. We also got an app, an app for your iPhone, for your Android. You can get all that from the website, EnduringWord.com. Levy says, put on the full armor of God so you can stand against the devil's evil schemes. Amen to that. Joshua Paul Porter, thank you for your work, Pastor. Thank you, Joshua Paul. And uh, I received your question from a few days ago. I hope to get back to that. And then finally, um, Marisol says, hi, Pastor. How should I read the Bible to understand it better? Is there a Bible reading plan I could follow? Thank you. Have a blessed week. All right. I'm going to look for a book on my bookcase here to recommend to you. Okay, this is an old edition of this book. I know that the newer edition looks different, but let me get this um, here. Marisol, I think that this is a tremendous book. Now, again, the newer version, the cover doesn't look like this, but look for this book by Max Anders, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. And it's a great book. It kind of goes through in workbook form through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And one of the great things I love about this book is I believe that if you go through this book and pay attention and do the work, through, do the exercises, you're going to have a great comprehensive understanding of the Bible. You'll understand that there's a flow in the Bible that goes from Genesis to Revelation and that it's important to know, to be familiar with that story and to know where particular Bible events and people fit into that bigger story. So Marisol, I'd recommend and recommend to any of you uh, again, I, I want to emphasize the newer 
uh, version of this book doesn't have the same cover, but it's Max Anders' 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. I think that's a great Bible resource. That might be helpful for you, Marisol. Okay, well, we're going to conclude today's question and answer time. God bless you. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you to those who support the work of Enduring Word. It's kind of cliche to say, but it's true. We really couldn't do it. We couldn't do the website. We couldn't do these videos. We, we couldn't do the, the way that we try to do the translation work and get that out all around the world. We couldn't do it without people who support the work in prayer. But then we also have people who support the work financially. And we're very grateful that I'm very grateful for that. Thank you for that. And God bless you. Have one time. We'll be back together next Thursday. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be doing these twice a week question and answers, but for sure we're going to stick with the Thursday question and answer time. I'll see you again next Thursday. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.